Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, and today we're with author Christy Ironside. Her book is called A Full Value Ruble, The Promise of Prosperity in the Post-War Soviet Union, published by Harvard University Press 2021. Welcome, Christy, and thanks for joining me on the show today. Thank you so much for inviting me. So uh, our bio, uh, Christy Ironside is an assistant professor of Russian history at McGill University in Montreal. She focuses on the economic, social, and political history of the Soviet Union. And her book looks at how money, an ideologically problematic vestige of capitalism, was mobilized by the Soviet state after the Second World War in the intertwined projects of recovering from the war's damage and moving toward the promised abundance of communism. A full-value ruble, the title of the book, one with increasing purchasing power, she defines it, was seen as key to the Soviet Union's revolutionary economic advance. However, the increasing importance of money in Soviet life after 1945 did not necessarily correlate to improved living standards, as she argues, helping to undermine faith in the ruble and Soviet power and in communism itself. Uh, We're going to talk with Christy about this book today, and uh, this podcast will be reposted and posted on new books in Russian and Eurasian studies and new books in economics, along with a number of our other channels. So I've got to start uh, with a big question, and that is what motivated you to write about money? Uh, it was actually a complete accident. Um, I knew when I when I started my PhD at the University of Chicago, I knew I wanted to do something on living standards. This is what I came in proposing to do. Um, but I initially thought I was going to do something that was more comparative. I had thought because I had actually been living in the Czech Republic just before I, I came, now Czechia before I came to uh, to Chicago, and I thought I wanted to do something on Czechoslovakia and the Soviet Union and uh, and sort of how living standards changed when the Soviet Union gained these satellite states that pr- produced a lot of the consumer goods that they ended up uh, consuming. But then I changed my mind about this and I'm sort of like casting around for things to do. Um, and I took a class that was taught by my advisor, Sheila Fitzpatrick and Lear Auslander, uh, which was on the politics of everyday life. And I had to write a paper for this class. And so I was, again, thinking, what did I want to do? And I had recently reread The Master and Margarita, which uh, is a very tiny detail in the book, uh, which is not at all necessarily about money. But uh, The Master, the way that he's able to quit his job and go off and fund his life as a writer is he wins 100,000 rubles in a lottery bond drawing. And I thought to myself, this is insane. First of all, 100,000 rubles seems like a lot of money in a socialist society. And secondly, what do you even do with 100,000 rubles in a place where money isn't supposed to exist, let alone have much value? And so I talked about this with Sheila, and she said, why don't you think about writing about money? And so I wrote this paper about winning the lottery in the Soviet Union, and then from there just kind of went down the rabbit hole of thinking about money more broadly beyond just lotteries, uh, thinking about money in terms of taxes, money in terms of its purchasing power. And it just sort of spiraled out from there. That's how I ended up writing this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love the fact that you include a lot of um, literature and, and even anthropology, I think, in the book. Um, what's the beginning and what's the end of the book? I, I get the impression that you pay a lot of attention to currency and its convertibility or, or non-convertibility. So you know, how, how did you decide to do that? And I guess, are there years where you begin and years where you end? Yeah, so so the book sort of had two natural starting and ending points, um, which are these two currency reforms. So you have one in 1947, in, in December 1947, and you have one in January 1961. So I've been calling these kind of the bookends of the book. Uh, but in reality, it's really hard actually to draw a clear beginning and end to this because a lot of the things that I end up talking about started well before the war, especially in the 1930s. But um, even in the second chapter, when I look at wages and, and income redistribution, 
distribution. I had to go back all the way to 1921 to attempts to rework the, the, the wage system in the wake of the the Civil War and sort of the, as they're winding down war communism. So I end up weaving in a lot of things from these earlier periods uh, in order to understand not just what's going on, but the sort of I, what, what I call kind of like the sticky economic thinking, like things are sort of still just sticking around into this much later period. Uh, for example, this idea of, of of leveling that they come back to many times where they, they see any attempt to level wages too much right. as being a problem because they remember what happened when they did this right after the revolution. So the book sort of, it begins right after the war um, and it kind of ends roughly with Khrushchev being kicked out of power in October, 1964. But you have these kinds of, the currency reforms are sort of the bookends on either end, but then it kind of leads into the past before that and things that happen after that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I want to build to the big questions in, in Russian and Soviet historiography. The whole reformability, I think, issue is, is you know, will hover over everything. Um, but first, I, I wanted to ask you about political economy and definitions of, of prosperity or maybe even senses of prosperity. Um, did you, in your work for the book and in your reading for the book, get the impression that there was a sort of moment of prosperity. And when was that in the post-war period? That's a really good question. I think if I had to choose a year, it's probably 1957, uh, which is right after the 20th Party Congress. Uh, It's also when a lot of the things that they've been trying to do in this interim between Stalin's death and, uh, and the sort of new course that's laid out at the 20th Party Congress, things are starting to pay off by then. So you start to see the purchasing power of the ruble go up, uh, people, and, and that is not just for elites, it's also when peasants start to be able to spend, like actually spend more money, uh, the supply starts to stabilize a little bit. Uh, they've moved away from some of the more coercive forms of extracting money out of the population. So they they cancel those bonds, which is the default, and people are very unhappy about it. But they're at least not going to have to put money into those things anymore. So, uh, you know, if I had to choose sort of 57 into 58, maybe, is when things are doing okay. Uh, and by 1962, things really start to decline very quickly. In fact, I actually think that 1962 is sort of an understudied moment in Soviet history when you have a confluence yeah. of different things not working in the economy. It culminates right. in them having to put the prices up, but you also have the end of the abolition of taxes. You have, you know, they're, they're in the Cuban Missile Crisis. There's still a lot going on in that year that kind of brings some of the negative trends together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think about the, that moment when the prices of meat and milk go up and people don't forget that, I think, in the subsequent generations, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah. So um, let, let's, I guess, go through your chapters and how did you lay out the book? What, what are the chapters of the book and content wise, how did you decide to do that? So I knew I wanted to start with prices, uh, which is what the subject of chapter one is, because this is the thing that coming out of the Second World War, the government is the most concerned with because prices have just done to put it bluntly, like totally insane things during the war. Um, They've skyrocketed in the collective farm markets. They, of course, are still kept down because they're artificially fixed prices, Uh, the retail prices, that is. But but the commercial prices, which are the ones that are paid in in stores like Goom or Tsum, even they had gone very high during the war because there's so much money. They're constantly trying to adjust the prices to reflect the actual volume of money in circulation. So I knew I had to start with that because this is something that they're talking about even before the war is over, about how to get prices back down to a reasonable level, um, how to make the cost of living be much more reasonable. And people are very upset about it. They complain a lot about it. The first chapter, which is called Our Low Price Guarantee, uh, looks at how the Soviet government formulates what I call an economic doctrine of of reducing prices. They've become very obsessed with this idea that they can raise real wages, so wages understood in terms of purchasing power, by consistently bringing prices down at regular intervals. So they do this every spring. Um, And I think it's not actually by accident that it's in the spring, because in the spring, this is when they tended to announce new norms for people's jobs that they had to meet in production norms. And it's also when they would announce those bonds. They tended to come out all around the same time, around March or April. And so all those things kind of were put together. So they would bring down the prices every year, just as they were asking people to maybe put more money into bonds or 
put more work mm-hmm. into their jobs. Um, so this is the first chapter. And, uh, and I look at how Khrushchev eventually abandons this policy of consecutive retail price cuts because they have a lot of knock-on effects for the economy. Mm-hmm. I mean, for one thing, they're not at all connected to the cost of production. They're sort of, in many cases, set quite artificially, or they're connected to oversupply. And this is the thing that they never really confess to the population yeah. is there's tons of goods. I think actually people would be quite horrified to learn how much right. oversupply of things there were in the Soviet economy this early on during a period when people are are really struggling economically. Uh, so it's about trying to promote those balances that they understand as being essential to the functioning of the money economy. Uh, so they do this, uh, but it, it has a lot of knock-on effects because, of course, uh, they're basically relying upon the peasantry producing food almost for free. Uh, in order to bring down these prices in stores for workers and for urban citizens. Um, And Khrushchev, by 1955, is quite convinced that this is only exacerbating all the chronic supply problems that we know about in the Soviet economy. So he gets rid of this policy and moves toward what what eventually gets called a more economically grounded way of setting prices. Um, They don't want to quite come out and say this because it would be an acknowledgement that it's a lot more market-based than they want it to be. But but basically, this is... What they're, what they're getting at is supply and demand are going to play larger roles in forming prices than they had before that. And this works very briefly in that, in that moment I just mentioned a second ago between 1956, 1958-ish. Like the prices are, they're bringing some things down, they're tinkering with them. Um, but, you know, and the supply is pretty good then. But by the early 60s, that all starts to go a bit haywire as well, in part because, uh, they have all these agricultural reforms that they've been trying to implement since 1953 are not paying off in the way that they had earlier. Uh, so there's lots of shortages. There are some droughts. They have to import grain in the early 1960s. They're not very happy about any of this. And it causes all kinds of shortages that then cause the market prices to go haywire again and all of the rest. And so the chapter kind of ends with uh, with this price raising on June 1st, 1962, when they announced new prices for meat, butter, and milk. And this is also mm-hmm. coincided with the wage reforms, and everybody gets very angry about it. And you have the riots and the subsequent massacres in Novichokovsk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I'm really curious in that first chapter, as you tell the story to the end, how the price mechanism changes. What is What are the changes and continuities from the Stalin period to the Khrushchev period? Do you think there are more ruptures or more changes? And I guess, how, how would you conceive of that? Or how did you conceive of that? I mean, they're basically not very different in terms of the fact that the prices are still fixed. They don't let retail prices fluctuate at any time. So there, you have one price for a certain category of bread. It's, it's divided up into regional price levels. So it's not that there's just one price across the entire Soviet Union. But there are fixed prices so that you can anticipate what it's going to cost for certain things in your store. That doesn't change. Um, what they try to do, though, is they try to bring the cost of production more in harmony with the retail prices that they're charging people. So there's more of an emphasis on uh, enterprises being profitable, at the very least, not profitable in, in, in a capitalist sense of making lots of money and giving it to their shareholders, but profitable sure. in the sense that they're actually covering their expenses, they're putting money back into the enterprise, they're covering you know capital outlays, things like this. So there's more of a sense of this. And they create, you know, one of the things that I talk about very briefly, because it, it gets kind of abandoned in my story, but then gets picked up later in the late 60s by people like Kosygin. Um, they're trying to find more rational ways to set prices, and they're trying to harmonize prices across the whole Soviet economy. Um, and what they mean by that is you had sort of sector-specific prices that didn't necessarily have anything to do with the other sort of inputs going into them. And they're mm-hmm. trying to do all this kind of you know mathematical. This is this is around the time that mathematical economics starts to take off. It's not quite there yet. It's going to be more of an issue and more of a a, a policy toward the late 60s, but you see some of the people who are important in the Kasigan reforms, for example, yeah. they start to come up around this time period and they're, they're able to input some ideas into the system around then. I, I'm really fascinated, Christy, in how you put names into the story. So, you know, I, my students will always say, okay, Stalin period, Khrushchev period, but you're paying attention to a lot of the economic experts. And I wonder if you might say a word about how you did that research. There are a, a lot of individuals that I think maybe our readers or listeners might not be familiar with. 
So are, are these mathematical experts, as you say, influential? Who are they? And, and then how, how did you start to study them in the course of the book through your chapters? Yeah, I mean, this is a really good question. Um, one of the things that I, that I, maybe I sort of imbibed this coming out of sort of social history training um, in my PhD, but I was, I was quite intent on not making this book just be, you know, Stalin said, Stalin did, Khrushchev said, Khrushchev did. Um, I wanted to show that there's a whole layer below them, below, below the central leaders of these experts, um, of people who are functioning in economic capacities. And, and I take a very expansive notion of what that means. So, you know, when we think of an economist, we think of someone like, I don't know, Paul Krugman or, you know, Joseph mm -hmm. Stiglitz. Like, I'm not really talking about those people for the most part. I'm talking about a lot of people who were more bureaucratic than that, who were within ministries, who were, you know, doing family budget studies, that kind of thing. But also you have, you have people even in the Soviet Union who function in a more Almost a think tank capacity. So one of the institutions I was I was pretty surprised to learn existed was the Ministry of Finance had its own uh, its own sort of scholarly think tank. It's the, the acronym for it is NIFI in in, in Russian. Uh, so <laughs> the What's that? Is that the Works and Wage Wages Commission? No, no, no. That's actually that's still a government body. That's a that's a, a subcommittee of the Council of Ministers. The NIFI is oh. basically a think tank. It's this you know scholarly right. uh, research institute of financial you know uh, of finance. I think that's how it ends up translating. I'm blanking right now on exactly what that was, but um, but the NIFI they they had economists who were producing reports that were doing analyses of you know the implementation of some particular experimental policy vis-a-vis -vis wages or taxes. Um, one of the people that I came across that I ended up writing a lot about in this book is a guy named Grigory Mariakin, who um, was someone who worked in the Ministry of Finance. Um, and if, you, if you've read Julie Hessler's work, you might remember him because he, uh, he pops up in an article that she wrote, a post-war perestroika, uh, as somebody who proposed after World War II that one of the ways that they could make some money is just by taxing private trade, which had, of course, exploded. Yeah, private enterprise, right? Exactly. That's very scandalous. Yeah. Exactly. So he's, he's this guy. And, and, and she sort of, you know, insinuates because he kind of drops out of her story. She sort of insinuates, well, maybe, you know, he actually gets purged because there's a, a chance that that happened. But no, actually, he just got fired. He got demoted. <laughs> and, uh, and his job after this is essentially uh, working on tax policy. Uh, so he writes a lot of reports for this, this NIFI Institute that I mentioned. Um, and he writes a, a long report on how essentially the Soviet taxation system doesn't function. Like it's not, it's not actually obtaining all the revenue that it could, nor is it promoting the goal of redistributing income to the population and particularly to families. So he's somebody who's writing these kinds of reports, which do get read. They get passed up the chain of command. Of course, uh, they don't always get listened to. And, and one of the things I, I think I, I really wanted to get across in this book is that, you know, the Soviet Union has policy discussions, policymakers, you know, the, the the process isn't all that unfamiliar, to be honest. You know, at the end of the day, Stalin can say, we're just not doing this. But you do have these, these right. discussions that are going on internally. And if you only ever focus on the policy that gets enacted, you miss a lot of that discussion, which often, you know, sometimes is kind of, it's a lot more illuminating than you would think because they're, they're saying things like, well, you know, why can't we do something more akin to what France does with the way that it, it funds, you know, having children? Or what about a lottery that looks a little bit more like the one they have in Poland? Um, they, they, they're, they're actually going through a wider range of options than you would think sometimes. I found that really illuminating. And, and I really only got at that once I started going into those sort of lower levels of discussions, which often meant in the archives sort of frustrating research where you would order a yellow that was just called Vaprosi <laughs> questions <laughs> and then go through hundreds of pages of you know questions, right? Sometimes they were not all that yeah, interesting. Yeah. And then other times like, oh my God, there's this incredible discussion going on of what they need to be doing that ultimately then just gets quashed at the top level or something like this. But yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, that, that was one of my big questions for you, too, because I, I think, you know, in many ways, it, it has to be a top-down story, and it, it is about a command economy and centralized leadership and so forth. But I, in your book, you have so many really interesting anecdotes and even grievances and stories and from below. How, how did you do that? I mean, how did you end up going to the archives? Did you have in mind that you wanted to capture you know, voices of those who were sort of 
on the collective farms or let's say not among the party elite with their dachas. Where, where did you go and, and how did you, you know, end up trying to, trying to capture a sort of fuller sense of the socialist security, as, as you explained? Well, my, my dissertation was actually a social history of this. And then I, and so I went in wanting to do that classic thing of looking for letters to the authorities and the squad key, the, you know, the reports on the popular mood. And I did all of that research. And, and the, the first iteration of this project was a lot more about the sort of meaning of money in this post-war moment. And then I did my postdoc at the Higher School of Economics at the, the Center for World War II Studies there. And I basically did a whole extra year of archival research after having done my dissertation. And it and I went in some different directions with the research I did there. And so if I had spent a lot of time with the letters from ordinary people, I went much more in the policy direction with this kind of second round of doing the research. And, and then I merged the two in some ways. <laughs> so I think this is partly why I have a lot of these people's voices. But I think it's really important because one of the things I, I wanted to do was show the impact of these policies on real people's lives, right? It's one thing to say that raising ration prices will help to balance the amount of money that's in our economy with, you know, the amount of goods that are available for purchase. It's quite another thing to be a pensioner on a fixed income trying to feed yourself in these years. These are really rough years. People really suffer. So I, I want, I was very committed to keeping their voices in there, but I also didn't want this to be a story just of a failed economic policy that resulted in hardship. I wanted it to also be the, the story of trying to do something after the war, trying to make this economy work given the, the practical constraints, the ideological constraints that they have to face. How did these economists, how did these political leaders try to negotiate this? How did they try to do it? Um, and so I think in some ways, you know, I this is why there's, there's a lot of people in this story, because at the end of the day, an economy actually is people. <laughs> at the end of the day, you know, these political discussions, they're, they're, they're people with their biases, with their experiences, or their, what they're bringing to the table. And they come up with these ideas that then they implement on a mass scale that then people experience. So I, I was committed to not having this just be a top-down story of policy being implemented down on people, but I also wanted to see the way that people were receiving it and how they were negotiating with it. And you also see instances here when people don't do what the government's asking them to do. I'll give you one very concrete example of this. Please. Um, when, they're, when they're trying to scale down the acquisition of new debts to the population through these mass subscription bonds, the government is really trying to get people to not oversubscribe. Because one of the real problems is they keep giving too much money to these things because there are all these kinds of social benefits that come along with being somebody who you know, selflessly gave 40,000 rubles of your money over the mm -hmm. past couple of years in these bonds. Mm -hmm. They're mm -hmm. trying to get them to stop doing this. And, and they can't get them to stop doing this <laughs> because it's such a socially ingrained uh, practice of, of offering sacrificially to these state fundraising campaigns. And it produces the problem. It just exacerbates the problem. They can't get them to stop it. And so that then means that it's really hard for them to find something short of just discontinuing these bonds and ultimately disappointing right. people because they can't change the social dynamics around their acquisition, around their purchase. So... Mm. Yeah. And I guess, you know, these are some of my questions about Khrushchev and, and not just, you know, the, the numbers and math and economics, but also the moral economy and the crisis of it. I mean, the promises that, that he makes to the population and then is really unable to fulfill. This is a, a narrative, I think, that runs throughout um, your book. Would you say that there were particular segments or sectors of the economy where Khrushchev was actually able to deliver. I mean, I'm thinking about the pension reform and, and your entire chapter on that. Um, but are there examples or stories where, where you can find something that might be more successful? I know wage inequality is such a big issue, but were, were there moments where you could sort of like pinpoint based on the archival research, what, what promises may have been delivered? I mean, I think the pension reform is is really the clearest example of this. Um, it really dramatically improves people's living standards overnight. In some cases, people see their pensions doubled. Um, and, and pensions were so low. They were so incredibly low uh, coming out of the Second World War because, you know, they had been set before it for the most part. And then inflation just decimated the real value of these pensions. And so 
the pension reform was desperately needed, and they had struggled for a very long time to get that off the ground and you know, kept coming up against the problem of different industries, different sectors of the economy wanting to preserve the higher pensions for their workers because, of course, they want the best workers, they want loyal workers, etc. Um, so the pension reform really does affect people's lives in a very, a very dramatic way. Overnight, they, they start to be able to afford things in a way that they hadn't beforehand. Um, but it, of course, then long term, it brings them back to this same problem of there being more money in circulation that's not backed up by goods <laughs> that they then mm-hmm. have to find a way to balance in other ways. So the problem just kind of gets displaced from one segment of the population outward onto others. Um, I think Khrushchev also, you know, he... It's, I hesitate to say that they're his agricultural reforms because from my research, the the most significant agricultural reforms are the ones that were from that, that interregnum period between the death of Stalin and when Khrushchev's in charge, when they abolish the agricultural tax, when they, you know, they make it easier for collective farms to pay money to their workers, you know, to their, well, to their farmers, they're not considered workers legally. Um, and so... Things do start to get slightly better in the countryside, but but really only in relative terms. The the countryside is still pretty it's economically depressed, so um, it gets yeah. a little easier, but not amazingly so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I it, it's so curious to me to sort of read, you know, read beyond the targets because the. I mean, as with so many other things during the Khrushchev period, it's aspirational. It's sort of future minded. Um, for wages, because I think this is one of my big questions. I mean, how did you how did you conceptualize real wage growth, so called real wage growth? Um, were were you able, you know, to sort of read beyond the predictions? I, the, there's that work by Volkov and Grecian, I think, on the seven year plan because it was no longer a five year plan. But I mean. How you know where did you where did you sort of go to do that research and in, in your um, in looking at the ruble and, and trying to you know, figure out this non market economy world? Yeah, so I mean, this was one of the the big questions in the second chapter, which which is looking more at income redistribution. I didn't I didn't want to write that chapter on just wage reforms because it's been done. Donald Folsom has written a great book on that, um, but I wanted to look more at at trying to create less income inequality in Soviet society. Um, And real wages have a really big impact here because one of the things that the Soviet government's trying to do in this time period is they're trying to, in some ways, decouple this idea of real wages being only about money. They want to make it be like, it's not just money that's the thing that improves your living standards. It's also all the things you don't have to pay for. So they're in some ways trying to make... Mm. Right. Real wages be right. a much more holistic assessment. And um, and so this is when you start to see a lot of propaganda that is emphasizing all the things that Soviet workers don't have to pay for with their own money. So whether that mm. is, you know, these trips child to the doctor, care. child care, you know, higher education, or, or if they do have to pay, it's a very small amount. It's a nominal amount. It's not, you know, like American tuition or something like this. Right. Um, so they're, they, but, but they, but they really struggle to get this message across. And this is one of the things that really interested me, like, because you would have thought that this is, this is kind of closer to communism in some ways, the you know, things that you don't have to pay for a society that just values these things that it gives to its citizens. Um, and people didn't buy that message as much as I was expecting them to. They, at the end of the day, wanted to see the money in their hand. <laughs> they wanted to be able to go to the store yeah. and buy stuff. They, buy, that, they, buy the lottery ticket. Yeah. To get this Saratov refrigerator. Right? Exactly, right? <laughs> they, they, they wanted the money. They, they, and part of it, I think, actually, it brings you back to this issue of, of trust in, in, in the government, um, trust in the money, right? Because it's a fiat currency, even though it's kind of nominally on the gold standard, but it's, it's very complicated. Um, the extent to which we can actually, I, you know, I get asked all the time from people like, how many, you know, how many rubles did this cost in, in this time period? And, and what did that mean in, in American dollars? I like, I just cannot answer this question. Um, it's just so incredibly complicated. Uh, but they, so the, the, technically there were nominal exchange rates and things were valued in other currencies and all of this, but in reality, it didn't really work like this. Um, but, uh, but, but it is, to bring it back to the, the original point I was trying to make, just people at the end of the day weren't quite ready for the non-monetized economy that they were, per- yeah. were purportedly moving toward. And so they wanted the money because at the end of the day, they have to go to the store and buy things, right? They, they have to take care of their kids. So 
that message never really succeeded. And I always thought that was very interesting. That, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, I, I'm thinking of so much of the work that Sovietologists and even sort of early Soviet economists, I guess, Franklin Holtzman, who's in your book a lot. And Franklin Holtzman is my Soviet economic spirit animal. <laughs> well, I'm not kidding. <laughs> say a few words about him because, I mean, he, he was such a fascinating individual, you know, in, you know, in the world of like the long kind of genealogy from Gershenkron to Nove to Marshall Goldman and on forward. I mean, Holtzman wrote that wonderful book from the 50s about Soviet taxation, trying to sort of see through the illusions of the system. But what was it? And, and what are your sort of points of departure from, from him? Who was he? I mean, I, I tend to think that Franklin Holtzman got most of it right. <laughs> I actually, uh, I mean, he, he was really fascinating. He, uh, I mean, in addition to having been an, an economist trained by these famous, you know, Russian emigre economists, he, um, he was in the military during the Second World War, and he actually fought um, on Soviet territory. On Soviet territory, if I'm not mistaken, um, and he spoke Russian quite well, and uh, so he he had sort of firsthand uh, understanding of a lot of things. Um, but the thing I would say I disagree with him on is I think he makes the case for the use of the money illusion a little strongly, uh, and this is something that's been picked up by by more than one scholar after this. This idea that you know you sort of um, you're, you're promoting the illusion that money has value when in reality it doesn't, right? Um, and, and one way you do that is sort of through really emphasizing kind of nominal amounts of things, right? Like, oh, you know, you're going to get wages of this much, but then, well, what does that mean when the cost of living is the following or when, you know, rent is this amount and, you know, what do you actually take home at the end of the day and all of that? Um, so he emphasizes that the Soviet government used the money illusion in a very conscious way to cushion the society's reaction to economic shifts, to very painful economic shifts. And I don't find as much evidence of that as I think that he thought there was. Um, but again, he wasn't looking at the archives, right? He wrote that book in 1955 exactly. without any archives. Right. Um, uh, where I think he's actually right on the money is with taxes. I think he is absolutely accurate that um, that taxes were used to absorb excess purchasing power in the Soviet economy, and um, much to the Soviet government's you know like chagrin, they did not want that to be the case. They didn't want to be using taxes at all if they can help it, um, but it was used to do that. And and I, I really kind of strongly agree with him in, in the fourth chapter because it's interesting. He actually appears as both a secondary and a primary source in that chapter because um, when they announce that they're going to abolish taxes, Franklin Holtzman just thinks that all of this is garbage. <laughs> he, writes, <laughs> he writes a letter. Here's an open letter in the New York Times. And he's like, this is this is all like, you know, yeah. like smoke he, and mirrors. He, yeah. <laughs> he, he thought a lot of things were garbage, including Reagan era, this defense spending. And, yeah. and, he, and, he, and he said so. And so. He, he later on, he does all his own recalculations of what the CAA thinks that the Soviets are spending yeah. on the military and all of this. He says, like, your numbers are wrong. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, I, I, I'm not formally trained in economics. I should put that on the table. So I like, it's over my head to do the kinds of calculations that he would be doing with this thing. I hope somebody does it. It would be fascinating. Yeah. Um, but well, uh, yeah, he, I think he's absolutely right about taxes. He, he understood that quite intuitively. Mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, this is sort of going into your later chapters where you've got this abolition of taxes project and how really it permeates the entire Soviet experiment from the beginning. Um, do you think there was actually a moment in Khrushchev's, I guess, you know, regime that taxes could have been abolished because... It was certainly on the table in, in 1959 and 1960, or tax cuts. I mean, this it runs even back to the imperial period. I'm thinking of Yanni Kotsonis's work. Yeah. But I mean, do, does it actually work, or is it just some sort of rhetorical flourish? And, and it's a larger question I have about Khrushchev a lot. But I mean, there there were internal committees to propose this, from what I understand for the complete abolition of taxes, right? I mean, the Ministry of Finance fights this tooth and nail for a very long time. <laughs> the idea the idea was on the table. I, I've seen a few letters, a few discussions, even in the Stalin period, about doing away with income taxes. Um, because on its face, it was sort of a strange thing that the, the Soviet Union had income taxes because, you know, this is a society that's organized around labor. You know, workers exactly. are your most important citizens, and yet you are taking money back from them. And the taxes were not 
a lot. Um, the income taxes were rather insubstantial, at least until World War II. They go up during World War II. Um, but the way that they compensate for that is through these bonds, which are effectively a form of taxes. This is, this is Holtzman's argument as well, because they the returns on them are, are basically non-existent. Um, you, you win the lottery prize for your bond winning. Uh, maybe I should back up and explain. Um, most of the state bonds that the Soviet government sold on this kind of semi-compulsory basis were lottery bonds where the number, the serial number was entered into a draw to win back part of your money and early redemption. But for most other people, uh, they got nothing out of these bonds. They got, they had stacks of, you know, people used them yeah. to, you know, insulate the walls. <laughs> um, yeah. They had stacks of them. Uh, they also, they were also used by black market marketers as a way of laundering money um, because they could uh, technically they could be like a surrogate currency in some ways they would collect them and then they would they would cash in on if, you, if they had a, a mass number of them they would cash in on them when they came up in the lotteries because some of them were were so-called guaranteed to win issues so you would get a kind of nominal sum out of them so there is a kind of complicated story that someone should write at some point on uh, on surrogate currencies in the, in the Soviet Union and these bonds were a surrogate currency in some ways the abolition of taxes. Uh, for a long time, the Ministry of Finance said no to this. And, and the main reason that they said no to this was because of the way that workers were paid in the Soviet Union, um, because they were paid mostly through peace rates. And they, you know, so you would have a base salary and then you would get paid a certain amount over that, depending on how many widgets you produced. And so their argument for the longest time was that we can't do away with income taxes because people just earn wildly different amounts in the society that are tied to their individual accomplishments. So this is a way of kind of uh, distributing the burden of financing things that affect everybody's lives. So schools, uh, you know, health insurance, things like this. Um, but the but they were not a lot of money. So basically, we're talking about something in the realm of 10 percent at most before the Second World War, it goes up then. Um, but what ends up changing is that Maryakin, this, this guy that I mentioned, the economist I mentioned earlier, he points this out. Um, by the time we get to the late 1950s, early 1960s, the income tax system doesn't really reflect actual income levels in Soviet society. You have some income tax levels. The highest bracket is something like 60%. And it, it's, it's with the yeah, idea yeah, that, yeah. you know, this is like some kind of entrepreneur from the net, right? Who, uh, right. <laughs> you know, that person doesn't exist anymore, right? And so exactly. they need to completely overhaul this system uh, to make it correspond more to what actual industrial wage levels are like. And that would have been a lot of work. And I think on some level, Khrushchev thought, well, why are we even doing this when it brings in a, such a low amount of money? You know, it, because it's the, it's the smallest of all of the sources of tax revenue that they have. Of course, the largest one being the commodity taxes that are built into retail prices, right? Like that's, that's another one of Holtzman's big interventions is that the Soviet government disguises its taxes because it puts it in retail pr products. It doesn't put it in something that you see coming off your, your paycheck, right? Um, and uh, so he thinks, well, we could just blow this up. We could get rid of it. Um, but the problem with doing this is that it's leaving more money in circulation. And this is so they end up, of course, they try to abolish income taxes. This is um, this is part of at least half of what's going on in Chapter four, sort of about the abolition of these uh, these bonds that everyone has to buy off their wages and then these uh, taxes they have to pay. Um, and so after they've abolished the bonds, which I should point out, they came off your wages. You didn't mostly buy exactly. them in cash, like just subtracted yeah. from your wages and then you own these bonds. You often didn't even get the bonds themselves. You just That's get right. the serial number. Right. So you'd have part of the money goes into that and then the rest of it would go off to taxes. Um, it's just leaving extra cash in circulation at a time when they don't have goods to back it up. And especially after they've put, you know, they've increased pensions, they've, you know, they've done all kinds of things to put more money into low income workers' hands. They're creating just an ever expanding mass of money. And taxes and bonds were one of the ways that they could contain the money supply, that they could kind of keep it, you know, at a reasonable level. And when you don't have those anymore, it's, it's hard to rein that money back in. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and this is what they very quickly discover because uh, it contributes to all of the imbalances that are then depressing real wages that are they're making the purchasing power of the ruble decline in this time period. And they very quickly reel it in. So they only yeah. do two rounds of it because it's supposed to be done in a gradual way. And they, they only go through two rounds of the cuts and, 
and then they yeah. call it off. <laughs> and, and yeah, and Christy, I mean, I'm thinking of, you know, beyond the Khrushchev period too, because you, you do have these people who, who maintain, you know, positions in the Ministry of Finance or Gostrudsberkas and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, is, is there a moment of disillusionment, I guess I would call it, there's one, especially when, you know, meat, the price of meat rises. Um, there's another with the announcement of the 1922 state budget. There's an, another with the famine, bad harvest of 1962, I, I'd say. Um, how then do you begin to measure this crisis? Because that's the flip side of your story of prosperity, right? The crisis that that becomes a sort of crisis of Soviet values, Kromnost, as Lenin called it, or you know, a crisis of, of things that are, are much deeper within Soviet um, political economy as well as moral economy. So, I mean, how, how do you then pinpoint that? Again, this is sort of like a chronological question, but it might be the result of a certain policy and, and certainly Khrushchev's retirement has something. To do with <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, I think by the fall of 1962, we're seeing a lot of these policies failures just come to a head. And the 1963 is kind of a, I, I honestly don't have a lot going on in 1963 in this book. Um, you know, Khrushchev gets kicked out in, the next year, but 1963 is just sort of a bad year. <laughs> and I don't see a, an awful lot of changes. I think also part of it had to do with um, the reaction to the prices being raised in the summer of 1962 really yeah. terrified the Soviet authorities. And yeah. after this, they they didn't want to proceed nope. with any more. Yeah. <laughs> right. They, they just didn't want to proceed with any more really disruptive changes that were going to generate that kind of backlash. Like this accounts sure. for why when, when they say we're not going to really abolish taxes, they do it in this very quiet way. <laughs> it's it's like page six news. They don't they don't make a big announcement of it. They don't even really do the mea culpa. They're just like, we're just going to postpone it. We're going to deal with that later. Um, and so it, it's it's really by 1962 you have all of these problems going on, and uh, and then and behind the scenes the other thing of course is that people are very angry with Khrushchev within the Soviet government because he pushes through a lot of policies without really listening to the experts who are trying to they're not even necessarily telling him not to do things they're sometimes just saying like could you approach this a little more slowly could you approach this a little bit more cautiously um, you know one example is of course when uh, he announces when when they're going to abolish these bonds, he announces that they will freeze the payments on them. In, he says this in 1957, um, but this is not what they had agreed upon at the Central Committee. They had agreed that they would just abolish them and they would get out of that debt. But then that just creates a debt that needs to be repaid along the line. And so after Khrushchev is out of power, Brezhnev repays that money. But of course, at that point, you know, your investments have been undercut by inflation and, you know, lots of people have died. They don't get the money back. But that's just another kind of giant mass of cash that's going to get inserted into the Soviet economy at this point when they have the same problem. So basically, you have this ever expanding glut of cash that becomes very, very evident and and they kind of don't know what to do with this. So... uh, one of the things that they increasingly do, and this is this is what the last chapter of the book is about, is they effectively warehouse it. They tell people put it in bank accounts, you know, put it save your money. And one day it's going to pay off, right? And of course that never really happens. So people end up with tons and tons of money that is just um, when when the Soviet Union collapses, they lose most of it. It's it's still very unsettled, actually. Um, what happened to a lot of people's savings? Um, depending on on the post Soviet Republic, they either made yeah. plans to, to give some of that money back um, or they just walked away from it. So people lost a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, but I sort of, I think that in some ways that that ever expanding amount of savings that you can't really spend on anything kind of becomes in some ways a metaphor for this project that keeps postponing delivering what it's supposed to. Um, and it, it, I think it does in the long term really kind of undercut people's faith in the Soviet government. Um, because they're not supposed to be asking them to do this. They're, they're supposed to be moving away from money mattering more, but they keep on making it be the opposite. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I guess my, you know, sort of final questions for you are, are big retrospective historiographical questions. I, I think our listeners and our readers will have read books like Armageddon Averted, Kotkin, um, and thinking about the classic questions of reformability. Can the, can the Soviet Union be reformed? Um I wonder what your take on on this is, Christy, because I, I, mm. you know, I'm thinking of 
how to get to the 80s and the 90s, especially in the 90s when people are hoarding dollars and their savings accounts are, are obviously, you know, with rubles not worth very much. And, and then, of course, the market has to change. Um, so do you have do you have a big, I guess, thesis and, and argument that comes out of your empirical study of, of how the system functions and malfunctions? I mean, I think on some level, one of my my big arguments is that it they had to they had to build this paradox into the economy from the very beginning. They're not supposed to have money. This isn't even supposed to be the case. And yet they have to sort of do all of this kind of mental gymnastics, ideological compromising to make this work in the first place. I mean, of course, they tell themselves that this is because socialism is a transitional state and we're in the process of working out all these contradictions and we're not we're not quite there yet where we can get rid of money or we can we can reduce its significance in, in the economy. Um, but they but that contradiction is always there in some ways. And then it just kind of it, it generates more contradictions that they're constantly having to contend with. Um, so that's one part of it. Um, my other, I suppose, big historiographical intervention is a very basic one, which is just that money did really matter in this society. Um, even though it, it didn't always have purchasing power, it had a lot of other meanings within the society, too. One of the things that kind of dropped out of the book that was still very much there in, in my dissertation was that you know this was kind of a symbol in so many ways of the regime's failings? You know, people getting money for unearned labor, people who were the new elites who, you know, and, and I make the argument in the very last pages of the book. You know, one of the greatest privileges in Soviet society was the ability to treat money as irrelevant. If you were mm -hmm. high enough up within this society, it didn't matter. It's not how you got stuff. You used your blood, yeah. you used your connections. But if you were somebody who was a lowly cleaning lady or a lowly shop floor worker, all you had were your useless rubles, right? To go to the store mm -hmm. with, to go to the market with. And that had to, you had to feel something because of that. And so um, I think that money mattered in this society. And I, I think that they tried their best to have it mean something positive, but I think a lot of the time on balance, it didn't. Um, it, it reinforced a lot of the problems, a lot of the contradictions, a lot of the, the hierarchies that, that were before everybody's eyes. So it just sort of bolstered that system. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And, and, and would you say, I mean, could you recommend for our, our listeners and for people, I hope who will read your book in full <laughs> because I, I can't do, I can't do possibly do justice to it here. Um, maybe a few books, so two or three authors. I am thinking of a few, and I wonder if you're thinking of the same ones that I'm thinking. But please, I, I think I, you know, people will will want to read a whole lot more about um, the system and political economy. So, what what would you have in mind? I mean, some of the the classic ones I would have people read. I, I'm a huge fan of Julie Hustler's work. Her book on on Soviet trade is still one of the classics. I cite it extensively in this book, um, looking at uh, about how the distribution system worked under Stalinism. Um, of course, also Elena Osokina's work. So uh, she, her book on Torgson is is just translated into English. It was out in Russian, but it's coming out. Oh, I didn't out. know that. Yeah, it's Great. coming out very soon. I don't know exactly the date, but very soon. Um, so Torgson, for, for people who are not aware of what it is, was the, uh, was the, branch of the Stalinist distribution system that was mostly geared at foreigners, but that was um, that people could barter things for goods there. They could um, do hard currency trade there. So if they were foreign workers and they had dollars, they could buy things there. But it was also a way of extracting a lot of the last valuables out of the population, particularly out of people who were the so-called class enemies. Um, so she looks at it as a, as a form of speculation, actually, on the part of the state, but also as a form of state capitalism. Uh, so that book's coming out soon, and I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing mm, that in, uh, in translation. Um, other things that I would recommend, too, and maybe a little bit off the beaten path, but, it, but there's a connection. Um, I recently reread this with my students in my, in my Russia in the World class this year, but um, Artemi Kalinowski's book on Tajikistan, on development in Tajikistan, um, that was actually a really instructive book for me, even for this project, even though he's looking at a much later period most of the time than I am. But um, but one of the things I really liked about that book and its tie-in to economic history is how it looks at this, this concept of kulturnost, of culturedness, as something right. we tend to think about as Soviet historians as being, you know, the classic, oh, it's a sort of civilizational project, um, but how it was actually an economic project. 
And it was sure. a word that often got thrown about in terms of thinking about, you know, what a, what a, what a civilized, prosperous life looked like. It was a kulturni life, right? Um, and I saw this in my own work, but it, but it was really interesting to see how that project really appealed to people outside of the centers in the Soviet Union. Mm. Um, so this yeah. laboratory socialist development book. So that one, um, I'm, 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 Thank I'm a you. fan of. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and I, I really, you know, since we are absolutely running out of time, I want you to talk about your current projects. I understand you have a book that you're working on. Um, I think it's a book, right, on copyright and mm -hmm. the relationship of international copyright. Would you say a few words about what you're working on now? Yeah. So um, so one of the things that I kept coming across in the archives that I sort of mentally noted and then thought, I'm going to go back to that, was requests for hard currency to pay royalties to foreign authors. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and and because, of course, the Soviet Union was not it's a signatory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was I, illegal. It, well, they, they, they did get paid royalties, but they were not legally entitled to them. Let's put it like mm. that. And so, but I kept finding these requests because they had to get authorized at high levels of government. That's really weird because I had initially thought I might have hard currency as part of the story and then just got kicked out entirely. But um, <laughs> so they, because uh, I had to draw the line somewhere, it's already complicated and big enough. But so the book is looking at how uh, the Soviet Union's engagement with the concept of intellectual property and, um, and its engagement with international copyright conventions, because of course they don't sign either of the major ones of the 20th century, the Berne Convention or the UCC, the Universal Copyright Convention. Um, but I'm also approaching it like with this book through the lens of political economy, because it's it's not I mean, there isn't really much to say beyond they reject signing this. But 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 the reasons that they reject signing it are, are larger reasons that are, that are of interest to us today in terms of things like access to knowledge, you know, uh, cutting mm. developing countries out of uh, knowledge circuits uh, because they can't afford access to some ex extremely overpriced database, you know, um, people. Uh, who, yeah. you know, otherwise would not have access to that knowledge. So th these are kinds of arguments that they were already experimenting with in the Soviet period. So this is part of what I'm looking at. But I'm also looking at the ways that they, um, in the absence of formal prohibitions on uh, on on using Soviet works, because, of course, the work was considered in the public domain in places like the United States, how they worked around the fact that they were not signatories. So they had um, foreign agents that they invested Soviet authors' rights in who then defended their copyrights abroad or who sold their products. So um, I'm looking at all of this as sort of a, as a kind of way of thinking about the Soviet Union's engagement with international norms, international law, and it's place in the global economy, in a global economy that's in particular over the course of the 20th century becoming more and more a knowledge economy. So that's what the book's going to be. Fabulous. Fabulous. And so I just want to say thank you. And again, congratulations. Um, this is a fabulous book. And I, I really hope people read it and listen to this. Uh, we've been speaking with Dr. Christy Ironside. She's assistant professor of Russian history at McGill University in Montreal. And her book is called A Full Value Ruble, The Promise of Prosperity in the Post-War Soviet Union, just out June, published by Harvard University Press 2021. Thank you so much, Christy, for, for this rollicking conversation. I've, I've enjoyed it so much and, and for Thank being you. a guest on the show. Thank you so much. And I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, here on New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies and at the New Books Network. Until next time.